the most important one is be willing to change course. Sometimes the best laid plans will get changed and it'll be through no fault of your own. Having the ability to remember that and don't get too stuck in only one way of getting to the end is, is important. Welcome to Building Doors. In this series, you'll develop the skills to build a roadmap for success, get inspired by those leaders who have come before you, and give you the confidence to stop waiting and start building. Kylie's career began with a role in human resources in the United Kingdom and has expanded to include executive leadership roles across all aspects of corporate services and specifically around business transformation. She now works with multiple businesses in both board and advisory capacity. Throughout her career, Kylie has developed an expansive knowledge regarding mergers and acquisitions as well as organic business growth. An expert in cultural mapping, Kylie has conducted the due diligence and led the integration of over 25 acquisitions globally. A truly international leader, Kylie has also enjoyed working in Australia, New Zealand, United States, Ecuador, United Kingdom and Asia. Kylie is well known for her inclusive and inspirational leadership style and has successfully led corporate teams in businesses varying in size from 100 to over 8,000 employees. Her experience spans both private and publicly listed businesses, having worked in an executive capacity in six publicly listed organisations. Thank you so much for coming on the Building Doors podcast. Uh, I saw Kylie speak at an event and I was just blown away and I just had to get you onto the podcast. You um, were so honest, authentic, and um, a lot of your journey, I think, resonated with a lot of people in the audience. In fact, I think we went over time because no one would let you go. I know. It did, it did go for a very long time, but <laughs> we had good. a good time with me. So it was really good. enjoyable. Yeah. It was the women in leadership event. So um, you do a lot of consulting work with Winston and they held that um, that event, which is so good. It was a great event. Mm. So. One of the things you spoke about uh, when you were talking to us was your start in life and what it was like, you know, growing up with a stay-at-home mum and that journey. Tell us a bit about, you know, the values early on in life because you're a great storyteller. So tell us about what shaped you and, and where you've come from. Gosh, we're going straight into the hard stuff, aren't we? <laughs> straight into the deep stuff. So uh, look, my parents got divorced when I was very young and um, so you know, I was thinking the other day, I was trying to remember um, what memories I have of my parents actually being together. So they um, split up when I was five and they were divorced when I was six. And there's, I've got these fleeting memories that, you know, of that time. And I can remember some, you know, quite impactful moments, um, even when I was really small. But most of the, you know, my memories are obviously when it was my mum. Mm. And uh, so, um, you know, it would have been hard for her because in the 70s, like there weren't that many people who had uh, divorced families at that point. Yeah. And, uh, and so I think people were in society were still navigating their way around that. And certainly my mum, you know, uh, was pretty keen to get married again. Mm. I think she saw that as, as an important part of her path. And, uh, and I don't think I really... Um, I think I judged her pretty harshly for that, actually. I didn't really understand why she felt the need to sort of repartner. And look, you know, I think, you know, she probably felt lonely, but also very overwhelmed with having three children mm. um, who were all very young at the time. And uh, so it was a, a quite a traditional sort of approach, I suppose, to parenting. Um, and I think I was quite judgmental of that when I was little. And I remember watching just thinking, yeah, I, I didn't understand why we had to go through that process of um, and so she got remarried, you know, when I was 10, um, but she had another partner in between um, who she's now with again after the second husband. Um, but that, um, that I think she felt that, that she had no choice. So yeah. she was very much sort of cast in that, you know, sort of mould mm. of um, being, you know, the stay-at-home mum. Um, who had, you know, the perfect sort of family, perfect house. And and she was an amazing housekeeper, by the way. The house was always perfect, pristine. Um, but, yeah, it was – I think I was probably quite, I don't know, judgmental even when I was quite small watching all of that. Um, you know, as you get older and you have your own life experiences, you have more compassion as to what it would have been like. But, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was an interesting start, I think. I'm glad you mentioned the stay-at-home. I actually also came from a stay-at-home mum. What do you think around, there's this thing, if you've grown up with a stay-at-home mum and you're a working parent, right, what are your thoughts around how you navigate? Because when you become a working parent, having a perfect house, having the um, the dinner, you know, on, on time and not uh, Uber Eats or something like that, um, you know, you 
for me personally, I sometimes hold myself to too high of a standard to what I'm expecting myself to do in a full day. How do you feel having stay-at-home mum but now being a working and really successful working mum, how do you find that identity as well? Well, see, the problem is, and this is, has been probably an issue for me my entire life, is I don't like to do anything by halves. Mm. And so for me, like, there is no option other than still having everything at home working really well yep. and doing a really good job. And so I think I put enormous pressure on myself as a yeah. result. And, um, you know, so I like to be really super organised. and I, But I have outsourced some things. Like, you know, there's a, we have cleaners who come every fortnight, which I could not live without. Mm. Um, but I'm still tidying all the time and doing laundry all the time. You know, I get up really early. Um, and I, so I think there's a part of me that just can't accept that potentially you could do something less than, you know, <laughs> less than well. Yeah. And so I like to try really hard. And But I'm also trying to find very efficient ways that I can kind of improve the processes around everything from cooking to say, you know, the slow cooker is a fantastic revelation to me, mm. as is the air fryer, by the way. But I'm always constantly looking for little <laughs> shortcuts and ways yes. to improve things um, and obviously engaging my kids more as they've got older in terms of helping. Um, and, yeah, I think that I think that that's probably the interesting thing is I don't think my house is the same as my mum's though because hers was, you know, that in the 1970s everything was very, you know, you had a formal dining room and the mm. formal lounge and I don't like that kind of approach, like, you know, that, and she still has a formal lounge and formal dining room, mm. um, whereas I think our generation is much more about, you know, having a more functional house that feels a bit more relaxed. Yeah. So even though it's very organised and very tidy and clean, thanks to my lovely cleaners, it's um, it's not as formal. Yeah. Whereas I think that that's what my mum aspired to and I think a lot of families in the 70s had that kind of formal feeling to it, yeah. especially portions of the house. Yeah. Um, so that was very, that's very different to me. And I think I've kind of rebelled against that because mm. I didn't like that. So there's a real kind of casual feel to their house and it's very lived in, but it's also very well run. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love how you talk about outsourcing and things like that, because that's an important thing that people don't think of. What can you outsource? How can you streamline yeah. the process like you do at work? but in your home. When I was very young, my father gave me this book to read, which was about this man who had a family and he was getting them to kind of basically do process re-engineering with all these tasks at home. So to see how they could effectively use lean principles to reduce the number of steps in every task. And it really impacted me from a young age. Yeah. So even now, like even as I'm hanging out the washing, I am constantly thinking about how to do it more efficiently. <laughs> and so I have all these little sort of games. Oh, it sounds so weird. I have all these little games going on in my head about how can I do it so that it's faster, more efficient, and easier to take off the line as well? Mm. well any hacks? Like anything you've uh, figured out that's right. Slow cook is one. Yeah, yes, definitely. Slow. And the air fryer. Gosh, the air fryer. It's is great, isn't it? Oh, amazing. But, um, yeah, so when I'm doing the washing, it's all about um, – <laughs> <laughs> the, you minimise the number of movements, right? So if you're constantly bending over yeah. to pick things up, if you yeah. do one thing at a time, that's not very efficient. So you would, like, minimise the number of movements. So so you would bend over and take five items out of that oh, basket. yeah. And then you would do, say, all the T-shirts in a row. But um, this is really boring, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it is. I reckon there's people out here. If, really? Uh, every single parent I know that we talk about it, it's, it's like, how are you going? What are you doing the week weekend? And I had a dad the other day go to me, washing. Washing and washing and washing. Yeah. But see, he should break that down so that he doesn't do it all in one day. <laughs> well, he should. He should break that down listening. so yeah. that maybe he has, you know, do one load in the morning. And yeah. just, you know, it's the same with any task. If you can break it down into smaller chunks yeah. rather than doing it. And so we talk about this even with study. Mm. It took me ages to figure that out when I was a student, that it's not a great idea to do everything the night before. Mm. You know, if you break it into smaller chunks, then you can keep on refining and it's very iterative. So whereas doing all the washing in one day is overwhelming and you just keep procrastinating and putting it off. So if you break it into smaller chunks, it's not as quite as overwhelming. And then it saves time too because then the kids aren't, and I'm not talking about any children in particular, Noah and Zoe, um, aren't just <laughs> rummaging through their pile trying to find their stuff because yeah. it's all streamlined and there's a process around it. So, so you're going to do that, aren't you, this weekend? <laughs> oh, I totally am. You know, you've convinced me. Um, one of the things you spoke about when I um, listened to you speak as well, which really resonated with me, and it, it's almost like what I walked away with afterwards, was challenging the status quo. It was something that really came through a lot in what you spoke about. Tell us about how you've done that in your own life. 
oh, look, you know, um, there's lots of times, and I know when I did that speech I was talking about the, you know, the eight-year-old me that went on strike. Um, which is <laughs> Tell quite, us the story. I want to <laughs> hear that. This was a good one. It is quite funny, you know. So um, I just, again, it was about kind of observing what was happening in my household. And um, and I think I've always questioned everything. like, in, But also really kind of, um, I suppose in the I was born in 1970, so a lot of the role models then, it was going through, the world was going through a lot of change and there were a lot of unions, you know, who were striking against their working conditions. But also you had these quite interesting role models popping up on TV. So women were starting to become, you know, much more vocal about a whole range of different things. So I was like a little sponge just taking all of that on board. And so I didn't really like the traditional uh, delineation of responsibilities in the house. And um, so I, I remember going on strike about that, but I'd actually got the idea when I was, you know, quite small watching it on TV and it really percolated in my head about how that could be applied to my own circumstances. But probably my favourite one is still the one about when I was working in that service station. Oh, tell us. That's my favourite story that you did tell. Oh, it's so good. And, like, it makes me really proud because that was a wonderful, wonderful period of my life. Like, I can't kind of stress how happy I was at that time because, you know, it had this big situation where I'd made this you know, grand statement to my mother and had moved out of home when I was only 18 and I was at university. So I had to work at least two jobs, usually three in the holidays to get through. And so I had to grow up very, very quickly. But mm. one of my favourite jobs was working at the SO Taringa service station, which unfortunately no longer actually exists. And Roger, who owned it, I, it was such an impactful person in my life. He was really like a father figure in lots of ways. And I think I was the daughter he never had. And he was definitely a father figure to me. And um, and so there was him and Jared and Ruth and I, the four of us used to, even though I was only a casual, I still find it hilarious. I got away with murder there. Like, <laughs> I think they found me very entertaining. And um, anyway, so there was this really scary mechanic downstairs called Marcus and he was, everyone was a bit nervous around him, including Roger. And uh, anyway, um, part of my job was to go down and get their morning tea order every morning. And, like, it was actually part of my job. So I, f- I find it hilarious to reflect on this. And um, I would go downstairs and, you know, they had these uh, artworks, for want of a better term. Yes, on those kind of magazines those we all artworks, know. artworks, yes. yes. And uh, so this was in the late 80s. And um, I remember just going and I could feel my blood boiling that, you know, that this was going to be the environment I'd have to go into every day. And so I actually basically said to him, I, you know, cut him a deal and said, look, you know, I'm not going to be coming down here to take your order whilst those things are on the wall. So you have a choice and I'll leave you 24 hours to <laughs> consider it. But, uh, you know, I'm basically not going to come back down here to take your morning tea order and you can come upstairs with that and I'll ring it through for you. Or you can take them down and I'll come down every day and help you out. And I even deliver it downstairs once, you know, that it's been delivered from the cafe. And um, and he, I gave him 24 hours, told Roger, who, again, thought I was hilarious. And um, he took them down and they were actually, I think, probably quite respectful of me because of the fact that I stood up for what I believed in. So yep. even though I was 18, incredibly naive, really, in lots of ways, I wasn't jaded or um, I was full of hope and, you know, and I still believed Without any sort of, you know, uh, fear that I might having a voice and ch- challenging things was actually a really positive thing to do. Yeah. At a young age as well, it kind of alludes to what your values were too, you know, having a voice and, and, and you know, challenging the status quo. How did you, d- do you think your values have changed or shifted over time or do you think that they've been a kind of constant in your life as you've grown and through your own career? Oh, look, I think if I'm really honest, my values have always been pretty uh, strong, but I think you do get a bit jaded as you go through, you know, different circumstances. Like, you know, when I was, you know, in that job, I was only very young and I hadn't really experienced anyone, anything other than good things, really. Mm. Um, You know, obviously there was the trauma of my parents getting divorced and, you know, all that sort of stuff at home. But um, in terms of my sense of self, I, no one had ever really um, made me think that nothing, uh, that, that anything was beyond me. So mm. I, I, but I think as you go through life and particularly through work experiences, but also through relationship experiences, then you start to realise that potentially your ideals aren't always going to be, um, aren't always going to work out. And so you do get a bit jaded, I think, as life goes on. And the trick for me has always been how do you maintain that kind of childlike enthusiasm for life um, and, you know, genuine desire to still, you know, make an impact and and have a really meaningful life um, 
despite what's happened yeah. around you and what swirls around you. And so I actually have on my notice board at home a picture of me like covered in mud with my neighbours, one of my neighbours and my older brother when we were, I would have been four in the photo. And it is just this look of complete joy on my face. And so I often look at that and just go, remember that little person, you know, she hadn't experienced anything at all that wasn't positive in her life at that point. So I think it's just important to try to really maintain that despite what happens to you. I love yeah. that. It's hard though. It, it is hard. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people as well. We have a lot of um, listeners as well and and um, young women that have gone into careers and, and I've talked to them before um, going into careers in um, uh, industries that are male-dominated industries like construction and manufacturing and things like that, which has its challenges. Yeah. Did you ever come up with those sort of challenges yourself through the organisations you've yeah. Yeah, oh I think God, we need yes. to be real about them. So that's why I do, you know, like yeah. to talk about it because that way people that might be listening will realise they're not alone if they're facing Oh, some. absolutely. And look, you know, um, early in my career it was I worked in the IT industry and yeah. in the 1990s the IT industry had more cowboys than Dallas and Texas. So it was <laughs> just, it was madness when I think about it now, some of the stuff that went on, some of the behaviour. And, you again, you kind of um, almost started to think that was normal like, you know, some of the stuff that went on and, um, you know, really bad behaviour from men who are a lot older than the women um, and you were sort of expected to kind of normalise that like it was normal. But to be honest with you, even when I worked in engineering um, and, I, and my favourite ever job was working in engineering, but even there I remember sitting in executive meetings where they were talking about having been to strip clubs and, you know, whether or not that was okay for someone to put it on their expenses and, you know, potentially we couldn't, you know, make that and that dismiss that person for doing the wrong thing because we've all done it. So, mm. and I remember just thinking this is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> that even in this day and age that these senior people still are talking about these things like it's normal. Yeah. Now, I, I don't think today that that would be acceptable actually. Like, no, I um, agree. I really don't think so. And I look at my 17-year-old daughter and she would not stand for that. Mm. But that wasn't that long ago. That mm. was only like, you know, 10 years ago. Mm. So so I, I don't know. And, you know, even there they would have all these kind of stories about, um, you know, folklore stories about, you know, men and some of the things that happened. And, and um, I've often wondered if it's a it's a good thing but they often get so comfortable with me that they forget that I'm a woman yeah and so they tell you things and you're just sitting there looking at them feeling mortified and offended on two fronts one as a woman but also the fact that they seem to have forgotten that you're a woman yeah so um yeah just I don't know all that sort of stuff was really um challenging one of the most interesting things for me was my daughter recently um wrote a, a paper for her economics assignment was it economics I think it was um, which was about she decided to do research on the gender pay gap mm. and the impact on the Australian economy over the last 50 years. It was, mm. it was this ridiculously impressive paper. Like my daughter is an incredibly good writer. And um, so she gave it to me to read and said, does this, you know, resonate for you? <laughs> and I was literally holding back the tears because, and I said to her, this is my life, this is my career that you're talking about here. Yeah. And, you know, the the blatant gap around gender pay gaps in all the roles that I'd had as an executive was just so incredibly hard to stomach. And they would always have ways to justify it every single time. And probably the worst example, oh, there's lots of examples, but one of the ones that really upset me was um, I remember in one job and there was, I was doing this really big job and mm. I had um, IT, HR, marketing, health and safety, um, and I was doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions. It was, and I had a huge team, like a, probably about 150 globally, globally reporting through to me. Yep. And there was, uh, and I'd worked in executive roles for a really long time. I had a lot of experience in publicly listed companies, and and this younger guy who, um, you know, he was actually a really lovely person, um, and he was an impressive individual, but he had no qualifications, no experience as an executive. He didn't manage any teams. And um, he didn't manage any budgets. I was managing all those budgets as well. Didn't manage any projects. Yeah. He got paid more than me. Yeah. So, and uh, and he got a bigger bonus than me. And I remember saying to the CEO, who I really liked, by the way, he was a great CEO. I remember sort of saying to him, you know, I don't understand, like, how can that be right and how can that work? And and he said, without even understanding how offensive it was, um, actually, well, you know, he's the future. He's he's going to be a CEO one day. He's like, you know, he's he's the future. 
And oh. and I was just sort of, what am I, chopped liver? <laughs> because I just remember, going, but he honestly didn't think he was being offensive to me. And, and then he had that kind of, you should be really grateful. You're getting paid really well. And I said, it's, it's actually not even about the what I'm getting paid. It's just the fact that there's no parity. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, it's funny how, like, you know, on the one hand I could have resigned, mm. but then I would have lost all those opportunities. Um, but it was like those sort of things I think chip away at your, your um, enthusiasm. Yeah. That, you know, so the little, you know, 18-year-old Kylie is telling the service station mechanic that you can't put those things up on the wall because I find it offensive. I don't know how she would have felt about, you know, almost 40-year-old Kylie being in that situation where she couldn't basically change the outcome of that. Like, mm. you know, it was really hard to kind of stomach that. And those things I think... You know, they do erode your your kind of confidence on that after mm. a while because even ha- though you're keen to have a voice and you want to say things, it's just like, you know, kind of butting your head up against a wall. Mm. But having said that, that person is a CEO now. Like, and he's, I think he's doing quite well. Like mm. he's, you know, he's obviously, he was an impressive individual, but it was a bit hard to stomach at the time. Absolutely. And I think... Um, you know, there's that certain level of resilience that you can have and, and you come into the world wide-eyed and ready to to challenge the status quo. But then, you know, if you get a few knocks and things like that, it it can, it knocks your confidence over yeah. time. Yeah. Well, and look, you know, I think my last executive job was like, that was just the last time. I just couldn't do it anymore. And, um, and you know, there, again, there was a massive gender pay gap there. And again, I had, you know, massive remit um, and then I found out that I was the lowest paid executive again. Oh. And you just go, and the CEO had made a commitment to me that he was going to make sure that didn't happen. And so when I called him on it, he was like, oh, there is no gender pay gap. And I didn't say we'd fix it up. You know, um, you know, you, so does it really matter if you're paid so much less than these people? Yes. It'll take me a couple of years to fix it up. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, it's just so, um, it's just after a while, it's just exhausting, like, you know, fighting. So I think what's amazing for me is watching the younger women coming through today because they're just so, they have such a zero tolerance for that. And, yeah. like, you know, I loved watching all the stuff come to the fore with the Me Too movement because, you know, I feel like I lived through a lot of those experiences and to and to see all that coming to the fore and women starting to really push back. I still have a long way to go, but it's a different era for my daughter, mm. So um, which makes me really happy. I think it's going to be really even more impressive if she has a daughter. Yeah, I yeah. love it. And yeah. I love I love to see it as well and and you know, it's it's like the journey that you've had and then she's seen your journey as well and she's watching and she's learning and she's probably I'm guessing a sponge like her mum yes. and taking all that in and then then her journey is going to benefit from you know, maybe some of the challenges and struggles that you've had yeah. through your career as well in advocating for that fairness and pay. Yeah, I hope so. And look, she's she's much more impressive than I was at her age. She's a she's amazing, actually. Both my kids are amazing. They're really impressive individuals in different ways, but they're they're. I think it's nice when you can honestly say that they're my two favorite people in the whole world to spend time with. They're just incredible, but so smart and. Um, but I feel really happy as well that they're in an environment where it's a very happy home and, you know, the three of us are pretty tight. Um, but we also give each other space. And so there's just a nice kind of lovely kind of feeling in the house and mm. there's no conflict or tension or, you know, everything's pretty um, good and, you know, it's it's a nice environment. So I feel like, you know, I've... I think I've done a reasonable job so far, touch wood, yeah. of being a good mum for them. And it's probably the best thing I think I've ever done is having my kids. Yeah, I feel the same about my kids. Yeah, it's I don't awesome, know. I, I get a really nice report card and I'm just like glowing for the yeah, rest of the I'm day. I was like, my child's kind. Yeah, <laughs> same. <laughs> he improved on his math score. Yeah. Like just not yeah, telling that outwardly yeah. to people, but, but myself. Because I think yeah. we we as um, parents under, uh, underestimate a lot of the time the amount of effort and love and um, attention that we give to our children in terms of their, you know, not just their schooling but their hobbies, their the, you know, yeah. what drives them. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly right. And do you know what I love about what you just said is the first thing you said was that they're kind and, um, you know, I, I love reading about their behaviours too. Like, you yeah, know, the I marks are important but yeah. the behaviours are so important and yeah. 
I always encourage them that that's such an important element of being a good person is having the right behaviours and, you know, being kind. And so it's lovely that you said that first. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I do love reading the behaviours. I'll, I'll skim down to the behaviours and go, you know, just see how they're going. <laughs> yeah. Because I do believe a lot of that is what, um, you know, a lot of the best leaders I know maybe have, have shared with me one of them that's a really good leader didn't do that well academically in university. No. But he's amazing at connecting with people and influencing mm. people. Yeah, and, it takes know. all different types. And I said that too to Ruby is that, you know, um, Hamilton's not, he's he hasn't quite figured out where he's going yet, but he's only in grade nine, right? So yeah. Ruby and I were saying to him the other day that, you know, when she was in grade nine, she wasn't doing exceptionally well, uh, but she kind of found her, found her groove when she got into grade 11, which is the perfect time to be peaking, as I said to her. <laughs> um, so grade 11 and 12 is a good yes, time to be coming into your own. But um, I said to her, when I was at high school, look, I was under the radar. I'm really quite certain that if you asked our teachers out of all of the people in that grade who, you know, who would be successful, I'm pretty sure my name would not have been there. Like, to see, I don't think, I just kind of was getting through there. Like, I never saw it as the main game. I wanted to go to university, but I didn't, like a lot of my friends were much um, higher achievers in terms of their academic scores than me. Um, and I remember going to the, the reunion, the school reunion, and the teachers didn't even know who I was. Like, you know, like, yeah, yeah. So they, I don't think I stood out. But I knew deep down inside that once I was out of my own that I would be fine and that I would find something that made me successful. Mm. I just kind of felt like I was going underneath the radar and had to get through that experience, but it wasn't the end game for me. So now having all that experience, do you ever fly under the radar now or are you still always kind of that confident, you know, do you think, I'm just curious, do you ever go back to that sometimes flying for, you know, observing and sitting back? Is that kind of, or do you, are you kind of always all in there? I think I found myself when I got out of school. Like yeah. I, I think that I wasn't really, I didn't, wasn't confident, except for when I was um, debating, mm. I was always into my debating. Um, which is a great skill to have. Um, and when I was doing high jump, that was always my sport. I knew I was good at those two things. And so, like, I had was very confident when I was in either of those areas. Um, but, you know, in terms of um, thinking that I was had anything additional to add or that I would, you know, um, be someone that was special in terms of that, I wouldn't have ever thought that. Like, and mm. um, But I think now generally I'm pretty confident and... Um, but there are times where, you know, I just want to withdraw. Mm. And um, we were just saying before that, you know, quite like spending time by myself. Yeah. And, um, and like, you know, I've travelled a lot by myself and I actually really, I know there's a lot of people who, who find that terrifying, but that is not terrifying to me. That's a, a wonderful experience to mm. travel by myself. Um, and, you know, I've never found it my own company, um, you know, boring. I quite quite enjoy that. But there are times, um, def definitely at work, right? where I would probably withdraw a little bit. It would depend on the circumstances around yeah. me, but generally I'm pretty extroverted now. Uh, tell me a little bit about, I wanted to talk about your journey going on boards because I get asked this question all the time. And so I, every time I get somebody that's gone into that journey, what was your pathway to get there? So how did you get into that the, that executive level and be at, at that level of being on boards and things like that? Because a lot of people I'm talking to, clients, they don't know how to get there. Yeah. And it's funny, isn't it? Because I think your ambitions kind of shift as you get more experience. Mm. Like I was reflecting the other day when my first job in HR, I remember just thinking to myself, God, if I could just be an HR officer, I'd be so happy. <laughs> <laughs> At uni, I was like, I just want to earn 50 grand I so I can leave off something other something. than minute noodles. I know. No, it's so funny. And, uh, but I, so I think your, your ambitions shift and it just, the bigger your experiences get, um, the more you tend to then start to reach for more. Mm. And um, so like my first executive job, I was like 27 and it was a great experience. So that was with the IT company. Um, but I was really green and I was very lucky because um, all the other executives um, were pretty accommodating in terms of teaching me about business rather than HR. So I was really, I was kind of like a sponge around them. And they also gave me a, a fantastic coach who coached me a lot. And that was a really, really valuable experience to help me really shift. Um, when someone can, in a nice way, actually really challenge you and you know that there's, it's only coming from a good place and they're not your manager, and it's, you know, you've got that kind of trusted relationship. It really does push you to, yeah. to go outside of your comfort zone. So I think having coaches has really helped. But um, so, yeah, so I was 
it was pretty young and I really did find that um, leading was very um, natural for me mm. and, you know, managing teams was very natural and I did start to enjoy, you know, having that kind of position of influence. Um, so I always really liked that. And so it kind of, the jobs just got bigger and bigger and more interesting. And the remit just got further and further in terms of apart, in terms of the, the broadness of what I was responsible for. Um, and then I think um, at one point I thought, oh, you know, longer term, you know, maybe I could do board work. And then I was really fortunate. I had a CEO who put me on the Australian Institute Company Directors course. Mm-hmm. So I think if you have a great CEO who's who's prepared to invest in you to do that, it actually helps you talk to more, more to the boards that you're actually working with mm-hmm. because you need to be able to engage with them in a different way to how you do with other people in the business. So that was really helpful. And I did that a long time ago. That would be like, you know, um, maybe 10 years ago, mm-hmm. well before I'd had any board opportunities. But then I also believe that it's important to always be doing good work, no matter what capacity you're in, because often things that you're picking up, even from, you know, decades ago, will often turn up later on down the track. So no skill is wasted. And um, my very first board role was actually working with someone who I'd worked with, I'd known since I've 24. Mm. And they remembered that, you know, that I had some skills and, you know, so they kind of um, had a conversation with this company about me going onto the board and they were really, uh, he's an amazing man. Like his name's Ian. He's just incredible. And he, Mm. um, he waited for six months for me to be available to go on that board because I just didn't think I'd be able to fit it in with two young kids and a big job. And um, they were very accommodating and he was really, Oh, he was amazing, actually, in terms of making sure that I was well supported and doing a good job on that board. It took me a while to get really find my feet, but it's good when you've your first board role mm. is with someone who is trying really hard to make sure you're successful. Yeah, and um, you know, he really helped me a lot. Um, and then I just started to go from there. And then I started to get more advisory board work, and um, but I was doing it in tandem with my executive work. Mm. Um, to be honest with you, and that is a hard road. Um. You know, and at one point I had to let one of them go because it was just I was getting exhausted. It was too much. Yeah. But um, it was also a really smart thing to do, doing the executive and the board stuff in tandem so that, you know, when I was ready to let go of the executive stuff, I already had mm. quite a bit of experience and it wasn't too hard then to just keep going down the board road. Yeah, okay, yeah. that makes sense. That's really good over, yeah. oversight. Uh, and I, I actually hadn't thought of the coaching aspect, even though I know, you know, it it, it makes 100% sense. I think a lot of the time we think of coaching just around leadership development, leadership coaching, but then there's also that aspect of opening your eyes to what might be possible for you or also what you might be missing in your day-to-day job, you know, and then covering any biases you might have as well. It's nice having those. I've had a coach before and it's nice having that coach that will be that mirror but but sometimes of the things you don't want to see or that you're avoiding. And, look, I love those kind of coaches, like the best ones I've had. I've had a couple that were a little bit too soft and fluffy for my liking Mm. and it was kind of like, yeah, I can just hang out with my mates if I need someone to tell me nice stuff. Um, But for me, the best coaches have been ones who have actually really made me think and actually confront some of the stuff that might be – um, showing up in different ways that I didn't mm. realise. Mm. And um, and so, yeah, I've had a lot of them now over the years and they're really helpful And um, but have made me confront things and change things and improve. Yeah. Like there's one amazing woman in Sydney um, called Peter. She was my coach for a long time and she um, – she, I remember her and I were talking about this situation that happened at work where, you know, I was, you know, the whole thing about wanting to do everything really well. I'd worked there for a really long time and and because of a whole range of circumstances, I felt like, you know, my star was falling and that perhaps they didn't think I was still as good as I thought I was at my job. And so I felt like, um, and there was a person there who was undermining me who was new on the executive team, mm. who unfortunately was a woman, which was very shocking from my perspective. Mm. Um, and I didn't know what to do about mm. all of these things. And um, so I remember in the coaching session saying to her, I don't know what to do. Everything I've done over 10 years suddenly seems to be um, worthless because this new person's turned up and you know, she doesn't like me. And so she's actively undermining me in all these meetings. And and um, so she, the coach was really good. She let me get a little off my chest for maybe two sessions. And by the third session, she, she just hit me between the eyes about, um, you know, was I seeking approval um, from the CEO, like, you know, as if he was a pseudo-father figure, which was really hardcore to hear that. And she was right, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Once I really thought about it. And I, I do think that, you know, my dad not being there when I was growing up was ha- does impact how I've approached some of the, um, you know, the work relationships, yeah. particularly with the CEO. Yeah. And so, you know, having that 
kind of hit between the eyes. And she said, so she said, this is a work relationship and you need to show him and everyone else in the room how good you are. So she said, you have been good for 10 years and now it's time to take it up and several notches. Mm. So she said that you start to remember how good you are and you showed them all without making any rash, you know, comments or she said you just take everything up several levels and um, she said and we will just keep on pushing and pushing until you do it everywhere and it starts to become second nature. And it was such good advice. Well, so firstly hearing the bit about the the father thing was actually quite confronting but, um, but then having the whole thing about, you know, how do you – take what you're doing and make it, you know, several times better. Yeah. And so what ends up happening in that situation is when you're focused on improving everything, you just forget all the crap that's, you know, flying around you from a politics perspective. So I just forgot about worrying about her and whether or not she was undermining me and just focused on doing really good work. And it was a really good piece of advice because now whenever I get in those situations where there's lots of stuff flying around, just try to focus on doing really good work. It's such a good point because, you know, tall poppy syndrome in Australia is alive and well. Like it's still it's still something mm. that, you know, unfortunately does happen. And if you're putting all your energy into what, what one person is thinking or how they might be blocking you or mm. uh, undermining you, then you're missing that opportunity to just get ahead and do just it. Just shine, yeah. Just, just shine. Do your, do your, do your great work. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, let the work speak for itself. And Ultimately, that's something you can always be proud of is the quality of your work and no one can ever take that away from you. And then ultimately, if, if that, you know, environment keeps going, I think, you know, it's good to have the courage to just leave. Mm. And that's the, the other thing I would tell my younger version of myself is maybe sometimes just go. It's not, you're not in the right place. It's mm. not the right place for you. If you're doing really good work and you're not being appreciated, just maybe just go. There's other places and other options. Yeah. But, you know, I think all of us get a bit stuck and you get, you know, um, feel like you have to stay and you've got false loyalty or well, loyalty that's not necessarily reciprocated mm. um, in terms of an organisation or you, um, you, you have a fear that maybe you're not actually capable of doing more or that, you know, maybe you won't find something better or mm. all of those things kind of play. But I think if you back yourself, it it does actually generally work out. Yeah. I wish I'd done that often more times earlier. Yeah. Yeah. And if it doesn't, we always have a saying in our team, what's the lesson in this? Yeah, exactly. You know, we can focus on what went wrong, but really what's the lesson in it? Yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the day, there is a lesson in it that yeah. you've gone to learn, you know. And, you know, that whole thing about Einstein, what's the definition of insanity, is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Exactly. Oh, my God, it's taken me so long to get that <laughs> through my head because I still sometimes think I do the same, you know, make the same mistakes. Yeah, because yeah. habits as well. You know, you get learned behaviour and you continually do it and then you think, oh, I'm doing that again. No, I know, I know. Yeah. It's funny. Tell us about your journey at Cardno. So you've been through over 25 mergers and acquisitions and that was no doubt a big part of your career and, and life. Tell us about what you learned from that process. Oh, look, by the way, that was absolutely my favourite job ever. Yes, and you said that and that's why yeah, I thought, yeah. we've got to talk about that job. Oh, my yes. God, I love that job. <laughs> like that was the best job ever and I loved working there. I loved, you know, the bulk of the people there and I loved the – the CEO who I primarily worked with there, the, the first one was fantastic. The executive team were fantastic. I just loved everything about it. But what I probably learned is that, you know, um, I did have a, like, when I got the job, I remember having on my very first day this, this feeling of fear wash over me of what the hell have you done? You're not going to be able to do this job. It's, it's such a big job. Um, and I remember having to actively push that out of my head um, and really embrace the opportunities in front of me. And mm. once I embraced them, um, then I found that the organisation embraced me back. It was it was a really good experience. Mm. Um, I would say during that time, um, you know, I had two young children mm. um, and, you know, I, my husband at the time was, a, you know, he was a stay-at-home dad. So I think I was just like chomping at the bit, loving everything about what was going on at work, mm. um, really enjoying everything from a career perspective, being pushed outside of my comfort zone. I just felt like I was learning every day. It was wonderful. But um, in terms of what I would have learned there is I think I, um, again, was excessively loyal ultimately because at the end, you know, when that wonderful CEO retired, um, the company went through a succession of um, really horrendous things and I was so loyal to the organisation that I was like, you know, the the 
orchestra playing on the Titanic. I was there <laughs> to the end, like, you know, until I got thrown off the boat, I was there playing my cello. I was absolutely committed to that organisation. And so when ultimately it ended up, you know, a terrible experience for me, mm. it was the, probably one of the most traumatic experiences of my life. Mm. And I would say it took probably a couple of years to get past that because, um, because it was almost like I had found this perfect job that I loved. It wasn't perfect, but I loved this job, loved the people, and I literally would have stayed there until I, you know, retired. That's how much I loved it. Mm. So the trauma of of it being ripped away in really, really challenging circumstances was just devastating. And, like, you know, you know, my marriage broke up not long after that. I think I found it really hard to focus on anything after that. Um, the two executive jobs I had after that I really did not enjoy um, mm. and they were just terrible organisations but mm. my confidence had plummeted um, and it was just horrendous. That whole experience on my psyche was mm. just really traumatic. Yeah. Um, having said that, though, it's funny how you have this kind of perception in your head about how others see you. Mm. And I felt like in a weird way that I'd let all these people down, that I'd let so many people down because I hadn't. Um, helped fend off this hostile takeover. and mm. But at the end of the day, I saw this wonderful person, Sarah, the other day. I was facilitating this strategy session and she was she used to work at Cardinal. Yeah. And the first thing she said to me was she came in and she said to me, and she gave me this big hug and she said, um, do you remember me, you know, comforting you when, you you know, they basically got rid of all the executives. She said, do you remember me comforting you and you were crying at work at Cardinal? I said, oh, yeah, I do. I said, sorry about that. And she said, you know, she said, I looked at you and said, what are you worried about? You're so much, you're going to do so much better than this. This is, you know, um, it's so great that you're getting out. And so her perception was completely different to mine. And she said to me the other day, you know, and look at you now, look at you, you're doing so well. So even it's interesting that her perception was so different to mine. Yes. But, um, but also I, I think I feel almost embarrassed now that I was so excessively loyal to that organisation. But I think in some ways, um, you know, coming back to what that coach said to me, I think that there was a kind of a family mm. unit there and mm. there was a, a sense of safety and, you know, that it was a, a place of stability and I felt loved and safe and wonderful and, you know, that everyone respected me and I was, you know, so it was this wonderful, wonderful place where I felt that I could be authentically myself. Mm. So when it was ripped away, I was like, oh, my God, you know, who am I without that? And the worst thing of all is, and you see this all the time, is people drop off. They, they disappear. One one moment you're, you know, this superstar who everyone wants to be associated to because you've got this big job and next thing you know you're like nobody. So, well, that's how it felt. Yeah. And But the truth is that's that's ridiculous because it's just a job. And your sense of self is really about yourself and, you know, who you are as an individual. Um, so I felt also kind of, you know, disappointed in myself that I'd got so wrapped up in this organisation that it literally crushed me when it, it all sort of all came to an end. I still believe, and I want to talk to you about that, that there's like this grief process after a redundancy or a restructure oh, that people yeah. don't acknowledge. No one tells you no. that it's, it's, you know, I had a role for five years that was restructured and I loved that job and I loved that company. When it was restructured, I was devastated. Yeah. I cried the whole, whole way yeah, home. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I think people need to talk real about the fact that, you know, restructures, redundancies, all that sort of stuff, it affects it, if there's a grieving process. Oh, it's it's a traumatic experience and there's post-traumatic, you know, tr you know, um, dis is it post-traumatic disorder or Post whatever? PTSD, yeah, post-traumatic yeah, stress yeah, disorder, yeah. That's it, yeah, that actually comes into play. And one of the things that's really interesting about this is there's this really interesting psychologist called Dr. Rebecca Ray and I was asked by the Women of Influence down the Gold Coast to go to a, an event where she and I were going to talk about trauma at work mm -hmm. and how it manifests itself. And so I told the story about what had happened to Cardno and, um, and it was on stage in front of about, I don't know, say three or 400 people at a breakfast event. And as I'm reliving the story, all of a sudden it just came over me like a wave and I'm sobbing on stage in front of all these people, which is really embarrassing. However, like, you know, it showed that this was, and it was really unexpected. It just came up over me yeah. and out of nowhere because I think it was such a traumatic experience and that trauma does stay with you. And I think people underestimate it now because redundancies and restructures are so common. Yeah. Like, and it's almost... It's almost impossible to find someone who hasn't experienced it or mm. has a loved one who's has, has experienced it. Mm. Um, you know, it's really, really common now. So, 
and I don't think organisations understand necessarily. I don't think so either. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's really hard about like mergers and acquisitions um, is if there are people who are casualties in that process. And so um, I like the ones where, you know, no one's actually, it's it's actually about bringing, you know, things together and it's not about getting synergies by cutting stuff out because that's always hard um, when you know that there's going to be people who will be impacted. And you can see the fear in their eyes. You can see that there's, mm. you know, so I like the ones where, you know, it's it, there's a lot to be gained by everyone by bringing them together. Mm. Um, this is a wonderful one I'm working on at the moment where you just see only upside. There's only wonderful opportunities for everyone. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, there's there's no overlap. It's just, you know, everyone is going to win. It's going to be 1 plus 1 equals 3 rather than 1 plus 1 equals 1.5. So do you think as you move up the corporate ladder and you get these great positions and things like that and people want to want to know you, they want to connect to you because you're in this role, yeah. do you think sometimes that, that, you know, it can merge your identity a little bit around you as well and, yeah. and, and you versus the title? Yes, oh, absolutely. And, look, you know, I think that's probably, and it's really funny for me because I, I um I like to think I'm reasonably down to earth, but certainly when I was at Cardno, like you know, you were treated differently, particularly mm. when you went to the US. That you know, Australians don't care so much, but in the US, they would um, certainly you know treat you differently because of your status and mm. because you were sitting, you know. I turn up to the hotel and there would be gifts waiting there for me from you know. It was just um, and you know people would always be really respectful and. Um, mm. But, you know, it's amazing how quickly all of that stopped when I wasn't in that role. So some of those people I'm still friends with, but a lot of them just kind of fell away. And um, so it was it was always about the role. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure they think I'm a nice enough person, but, um, you know, they're thinking about their own circumstances and mm. they're kind of, you know, thinking about their own career. They're not necessarily seeing you for who you are. And I think also that... Um, you have to remember that if you're in a senior role. Yeah. It's, it's just a role and it's just a job and yeah. um, it's it doesn't actually define you. You get to define yourself. And I think if you get sucked into thinking the job is you, that's when things start to go, um, can get really dangerous, I think, in terms of your own sense of self. I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about your life lessons because I loved them. You went through them when you <laughs> presented and I think it's important to reflect on them because um, I think they will resonate with with people listening as well. So talk us through five <laughs> life lessons from Kylie. Okay, right. So the first one, and I, I wrote them down just in case I forgot. Them. I know, because they were so good. <laughs> yeah. So the first one is that I think you should always have a voice. And it's always important to challenge the status quo. And to be honest with you, no matter what's happened to me, I still do that. I still find that. And if I'm in an environment now where I can't do that, if I can't have the freedom to have a voice and challenge the status quo, I think I don't have the strength to say I just have to remove myself from that environment. So the work I do now, I'm very selective about the people I work with mm -hmm. and also the kind of work that I do. And so if it's not the environment where I can have a voice and I don't feel respected, um, then I just extract myself from that. And that's mm. one of the great things about the kind of work I do now is that, you know, you're not kind of stuck in this environment where you've got no choice. Mm. Um, but you do always have a choice. Sometimes it's just a harder one. So I think having a voice and challenging the status quo is very important. Yep. Um, number two, and um, this is probably comes back to what we were talking before about the process engineering, <laughs> but I think having um, conviction and discipline and commitment is really important and, um, you know, have, being able to actually have really strong convictions that you really believe in, mm. but also having the discipline to actually execute against those convictions, I think, is really important. So I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, dreams and aspirations, but they don't actually take any action to get to those dreams or aspirations. Mm. So I think it, it's important to have the dreams and have the conviction and, you know, the, but then commit to the process and commit to actually sometimes you have to do the work. And I think that, you know, there are no shortcuts. You know, I think you have to do the work. Yeah. So I think having that discipline and commitment to your goals is really important. I think number three is is probably the most important one is be willing to change course is um, because whether you like it or not, sometimes the best laid plans will get absolutely changed and it'll be through no fault of your own. So the Cardinal example is a great one, but throughout my career, there's been several times where I've changed course. Mm. Um, so we didn't talk about today, but, you know, as you know, I was 
really keen to be a political journalist. That was really yes, my thing. Yes, you have to, yes. Yeah, I really wanted to be Yana. <laughs> well, here we go. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, but that hasn't worked out that way. And But there were opportunities that sometimes present themselves in life and you have to be prepared to change course. And so I think having the ability to remember that and don't get too stuck in just having only one way of getting mm. to the end is is important. And, you know, that, it kind of makes things a bit more fun too when you do that. Um, and I think... Number four is be willing to put yourself forward. And um, I've definitely got better on this as I've got older is like, you know, if you see something and you want it, Mm. you've got to put yourself forward. If you don't, then, you know, just thinking about it or hoping is not necessarily taking the action to make that happen. And the worst case scenario is that someone says no, and that's Mm. not really that bad, you know. So I think being able to really put yourself forward and getting out of your comfort zone is is important. Um, So that's worked really well for me. And the last one is embracing change, you know. So um, sometimes those changes are imposed on you. Mm. And I think that that's actually some of the things that I found interesting is that often in my executive roles, I've been the one imposing the change, right? So it's so easy when you're the one managing the change. <laughs> but really good for, to have empathy and understand what it's like when the change is imposed on you. You know, mm. so when you're talking about people losing their jobs or getting made redundant or being, you know, mm. in a restructure, they're having a change that is very impactful imposed on them. So I think having had the experience of going through that actually gives you much greater empathy. It does. About how that feels. Um, but also ultimately understanding that whether you like it or not, the change is coming. So you, the best thing to do is embrace it. Just get through that grieving process. Mm. Um, but And I also think nowadays one of the things that's really great is that people do talk more about mental health. They talk about it so much more than they yeah. did um, in the past and it's it doesn't have that same stigma. No. And so people will go and get counselling and help them through that trauma mm. and I think that's really important. Um, yeah, I don't think it, that was as prevalent in the past, but um, I think getting that support is really important. And it was actually quite funny. I was working in this one company once and it was only a few years ago and um, and the lunchroom were, you know, this bunch of young 20-year-olds and they were having lunch and they were just chatting and one of them said, oh, yeah, I've had to take, you know, um, a few days mental health um, leave last week uh, because I had a few issues and I just had to go and see the, you know, and I've tapped into the EAP to get some professional support. And they were just talking about it like she'd just gone and had, you know, um, given blood or something. You know, it was just yeah. it was so like there was no issue, no stigma. So I think that that's also important is, you know, as you go through change, um, if it is having some kind of impact on you mentally, you should get some support. And it's good that you can get those resources now. And I am seeing that with the the generation coming through. I love that they're so open and talking about it and raising what it awareness about it as well because you know when they do that when they have the conversation if you're struggling or someone in your team is struggling there's that openness to, yeah. to kind of go hey I'm, I'm, I need a mental health aid. I'm struggling and then other people can pitch in yeah. other people can help other people can support through that yeah. so I think it's so much better and look you know for our parents generation they just would never ever have and like even now I'm, like that's not something that my mum would talk about like that's not something that she would embrace and um she doesn't want to talk about those things and that's just not how her generation dealt with those things and Mm. so for our generation it's better but for our kids it's even you know more evolved so it's I think it's really positive I think so too I mean my my father suffered from PTSD my my whole childhood and Mm. and look he just never got better he never got better and I do wonder did he get any help at all he's had he's seen psychiatrists he's been in and out of um mental wards and things like that to try and get fixed and he's still not better you know he's ex-federal police officer you know had a lot terrible things seen terrible things seen terrible things and I look at his generation and I look at um the generation coming through and I think this is a good change this mm. is a good change this yeah. is a change these conversations save lives yeah. and and impact so many people so I'm glad that it's shifted as yeah. well I, th- I think so too it's really positive and like it makes me feel excited for the future yeah when you see you know these young people having you know ways of questioning things it just makes you feel like excited for you know what's going to happen in the future yeah and I think as well our children can teach us too sometimes um the other day I, there was a spider in my son's room and I was like, all right, I'm just going to go. I've got to kill it. Like, you know, we can't get it. He goes, oh, you can't. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? He goes, the spider has a home. The spider has a family. You've seen the web that it's been building outside. He's like, why would you kill it? And he was in tears, starts crying. He's only nine. I love that. And I went, why would I kill it? I was, my parents have always killed spiders. I love animals. And I went, 
okay, I could just remove it and get it into a container and take it outside. And he goes, yes, then he can find another home. <laughs> <laughs> just, I know, it's just from the mounds of babes. Just, he's only little. He's only yeah, young. Yeah. But then I know that as at, at, that those, um, you know, comments and things that they say and, and the assignment that you read and things like that, I think we owe, we learn so much at work, but, gosh, we learn a lot from our children, don't we? Yeah, I agree. And Every day. Oh, gosh, at one point, I don't know um, how long ago this was, but it still has had an impact on me is I remember uh, Ruby coming to me once and saying, so I've done some research on all the makeup that's in your um, drawer <laughs> and these are the brands that now have to be expelled because they test on animals. And I went, okay. <laughs> and it was like Mac had to go. Mac. Yeah. Oh, Mac. Oh, no. I know. And so that was a, you know, but to be honest with you, like I, I loved the fact that she'd done the research. You know, we talk about having conviction. Yes. And, you know, doing your research and like here she, how, she had a voice. She came to me and, you know, showed me all the facts. And uh, so how can you argue against that? I just love that. And and I think it's good, you know, that that they are, you know, that she's got that confidence to challenge you a little bit as well. And oh, that, that yeah, good relationship yes. with you yeah, to yes. kind of go, um, yeah, now I can't use Mac. So, yeah. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you know, I'm it's, for you. It's fine. So everyone, yeah. everyone listening probably won't be able to either. No. <laughs> um, so, look, I did want to find out one more question and a question I always ask because it's so interesting what people a- answer. What is the legacy you want to leave in your own life? So so when you, what's the legacy you want to leave behind? Uh, I would say, aside from obviously my wonderful children, I would say that I was known as someone who helped other people. That would be a good thing. Um, if I, I, I think I've, I have made an impact on other people's lives, but that's the thing I always think is being kind and helping other people when they need help. Um, that was something that it kind of, from a very young age, um, became clear to me that sometimes other people don't step up to the mark and help. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can help and um, particularly if you can do something practical, um, I think helping just even if it's just one person that you've made an impact on their life, I think that's a really positive thing. So for me, I think always being kind and helping other people in some way, shape or form is important. So I had this very impactful thing happen to me um, and I remember I was about 17 and I remember going into um the mall with my younger brother and one of my friends from my mm. part-time job at the time. Yeah. And so we were getting dropped off in a taxi. Oh, we were at the top of the mall, that's right, and there was this young woman who had been beaten up and she was in the back of a taxi and it was at the top of the mall and the taxi driver was throwing her out of the taxi because she had no money to pay for the fare and she'd clearly been beaten up and she was trying to get to oh. a um, a place where she'd be safe. And uh, to my horror, like everyone just stood there. All these people were just standing there looking at her. Like I had made, we're just standing around mm-hmm. watching this whole scene unfold. And so even though I was only 17, like I just, without even thinking, just went up to the taxi driver and gave, it was only $10 too, gave him the $10. That was all the money I had, but it didn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Gave him the $10 and um, I, you know, helped her get to a phone booth so we could get her to this shelter. And so, um, but that was a really impactful thing to, to firstly, the shock that no, none of these grown-ups were actually helping her, which was because I was only 17, but also um, that I had somehow helped her in a way that potentially would help her go on a better path in her life. But, you know, it was really shocking to me that, and you, you see that quite a lot. You do. Sometimes people just watching. Yeah. Not doing anything to help someone who needs help. Yeah. And um, so so if someone asks my help, I try really hard to, to help where I can. Sometimes it's I can't, but if I can, I, I will always try hard to be someone who helps others. I really, yeah. I, I, I there needs to be more people like you in the world. Honestly, uh-huh. no, seriously, I, I, I do believe. Like, if ever, if can imagine if the more people that have that mindset of how can they help, what value mm. can they add to someone else's life, what a better world it would be. Yeah, well, and it's not that hard. I think you know, all of us have different skills, and you yeah. don't have to be, um, you know, some incredible philanthropist to be someone. Who, it's sometimes it's just really practical things. So. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time people use that excuse, somebody else will do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but no, no. <laughs> well, yeah, I can tell you in that situation as a 17-year-old being shocked that there were grown-ups not doing anything to help this woman who'd been clearly beaten up. And um, I like to think that nowadays that wouldn't happen, that she'd be okay. Um, mm. But I don't know. I don't know. I think humans are interesting. Sometimes, you know, um, I've often thought about, I know this is a strange, strange link, but you know, back in the days of the Romans, right, where they had those colosseums where people literally were getting ripped apart by wild animals and they had to, like, you know, hurt each other and, you know, mm. there were gladiators in there killing each other to the death. 
just go, how can that be? How could you stay and watch that? Like, and um, to see something like that happening to another human being. But then I have found myself in sporting events, like, you know, literally bang for blood for the opposing team to, like, state of origin. There's how can you not write? <laughs> and, uh, and so you, sometimes people, I think, dehumanise a person in front of them. And so, you know, in the case of the Romans, watching someone get mauled apart by a lion or whatever in the arena, they must have been able to dehumanise those people up there. Um, it's a bit like refugees, like on mm. boats, you know. Mm. How do we dehumanise them so much that we're not interested in the people dying? And there's this common common thing that people say, I don't want to get involved. I, I was 17. I remember I was 17 and it was in the middle of the mall in the middle of the city and there were some two, lady, two ladies, I think they would only have been 20, so only a little bit older than me. And I don't know if you remember the stop the boats. That that yeah big, yeah that yeah, big thing yeah. It was a huge thing, and, the, and and there was the I can't remember if it was around the same time there was riots and things like that that were going on as well. And I'm I'm, I'm in the mall um, or shopping center for I don't know why I'm talking American, but I'm in the shopping center, <laughs> and um, these two women walk past in traditional dress, and there's this guy chasing them, and he's like, "Go back to your own effing country." Oh my you god! Don't no one did anything. No one, there was, there was groups of people like watching yeah. and these girls are petrified. Like they're only, you know, maybe three years older than me. And, and I remember my mum had often said, don't get it. You know, she, she's a very kind person, but she's like, don't put yourself in situations. Where you could get hurt. Yeah, where you could get hurt. But I never listened to that. I should sometimes. But I, I thought, well, I went and got security and I said, you know, can you help these, like these, these people are being harassed and no one had spoken to security. No one had done anything. No and they ended up, the they, they, they got the guy, they got rid of him, called the police and things like that. But I, I would say, you know, it, 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 they'd been walking and he'd been following them. They'd been going on for a good five minutes before I got there. And so I, I definitely agree with you. Sometimes, you know, it, it can make you feel, I don't know if you get that, but sometimes I get those butterflies in my stomach when I have to do something like that, where I'm like, this is something it's that I have to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you have to make that change and you have to help people. Yeah. And it can be just something small. It doesn't have to be donating millions in charity, but there's ways in every day that you can do a little thing to make someone's life just that. And you better. just go like the arrogance of that person. Like, you know, you know, I'm sure the First Nations people would be sitting there going, you know, yeah. hello. <laughs> exactly. Uh, hypocrisy. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, that just what a terrible thing to say. And this assumption that somehow that we have rights over anyone else coming into our country. And yeah, yeah, it's it's weird. I, I find all that stuff, you know, really hard to stomach. But good on you for see see all the things that happen in the mall. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know. And um with that sort of thing and just like those those small little actions, it just, you know, it's just they're the little things. If you can just find a little way to make someone's day just that little bit better, those yeah. are the things that that's do making an impact. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And like I think if you can always try to just, you know, help others when they need help. Mm. Um, and it doesn't have to be massive. Like, you know, um, it could be just helping someone, you know, get a job, mm. you know, or help them with their resume or, you know, yep. just helping them, you know. Um, so I think that that's important. And I, again, I try really hard to um, explain that to my kids, that it's important to always be kind. I yeah. think they're getting better at it. Yeah. 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 Oh, I think with you as, as a mum, I think they'll <laughs> probably have it covered. I'm pretty confident. Um, look, I want to have a chat with you about the Rocket Round because okay. the Rocket Round's fun okay. times and it's always learned something about books and cats and dogs. So what is your favourite book? Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights. I love awesome. that book. I haven't yeah. read that one. Oh my god, you have to read that book. Is that kind of is it kind of a relax on a Sunday afternoon and just indulge with the book kind of book? It is. It is such a dark book. Oh. Because it's Emily, is it Emily Bronte, I think, who wrote it? But she um it's it's like got passion and it's it makes comments about the class system. Ooh. Um, but you know, forbidden love, ghosts, you know, it's all sorts of stuff in there, but it's a really great book. I'll and read that it's one. um it's one of those things that it's I think it's I think it's really interesting to read, but it's also um, it's just you can't. I, I personally love it. I think it's a great story, and I don't find that any of the film adaptations of that book have ever done it justice. But anyway, all right, I'm going to read that one. Uh, and favorite holiday destination? Scotland. Scotland, beautiful. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Whatever, <laughs> no just cats. <laughs> Except Alison and her cat Roger. Shout out to Alison with Roger the cat. Coffee or wine? Can I have both? Yeah, yeah both. 
Yeah. Um, I, I like to try and make people choose, but there's been many people that have um, declined that question. White Christmas or summer Christmas? I actually like both as well, but I think at the moment I've got this real thing going on with Scotland, so probably white Christmas, but I, I do like having Christmas in Australia as well, but probably if I had to choose between the two, it would be white Christmas. White Christmas. And what makes you feel like your home? Um, being with my children. Yeah. Nice. Mm. Oh, and the po- some of the podcasts you're listening to right now. So if some, obviously yours. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Carly. <laughs> um, and actually, also, I really, um, I know this sounds kind of sad, but I don't really listen to too many podcasts. Neither. Shh, I'm, I'm don't tell of, Gil. <laughs> I'm actually a music person, so like, I think if there's, if I'm ever listening to anything, it's usually music. But people send me stuff about podcasts all the time, so I have got a little backlog there that I try to download when I'm on the plane. The most recent one was something from Goop. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, and what music do you love to listen to, Garly? Uh, look, I have a very broad range of music tastes. And so everything from, gosh, right back to the Rolling Stones and um, and Elvis and all those things, right back in the 50s and 60s, I like all that stuff, right through to today. And so um, my daughter would be very proud to know that I'm a fan of BTS since her, you know, ma- making me watch BTS over and over again. And she went to watch the Blackpink concert recently in Sydney. I didn't go to that. But I do like um, also the Dandy Warhols comes to mind. Do you know oh, them? I no. Them. Oh, no. They're great. Yeah. And I love, um, I love going to see music actually. So this last year, like um, Ruby and I have both been to see um, Guns N' Roses. Oh, cool. I know. It was pretty hilarious. And um, But also, <laughs> you know, Coldplay. I love Coldplay, um, I love Coldplay too. And like I've, I've actually just introduced Ruby more recently to U2. Like mm. she's into U2 now, which is, you know, a bit more vintage from her perspective. Mm. Um, but yeah, broad range of different music tastes. What do you think it is that you love about music? Well, I used to play a lot of instruments, so I used oh. to play, look at your face, I used to play the cello and the flute and the piano, but not all at the same time. Nice. No, My yeah. son plays the cello. He's learning the cello. Oh, it's such a beautiful instrument. I was watching the strings concert and I was like, I could, you couldn't wipe it's the so smile beautiful. off my face. Yeah, it's got a, I think it, the sound of the cello is is so much more beautiful than the violin or the double yes. bass. I love the cello. Yeah, I really loved playing it, but that's a long time ago now. I haven't played it for a while. I'm so glad it was the cello, not the recorder. I won't <laughs> lie. Like when they even said he's playing the cello, I said, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> I still have my recorder. Do you? When I was in primary school. Yeah, it's in my drawer at home. I can still play Mary Had a Little Lamb on that thing. I know. I did the other day. Skills you didn't know so Kylie sad. has. So sad. Yes. Yeah, yeah I know. If Ridiculous. we ever have a bonus episode where everyone plays their instruments, you can come and bring your recorder. Okay. That'd be great. Look, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're so welcome. Thank Loved you so much chatting. for inviting me. Loved yeah. chatting with you. Just so much that you've shared. And I, I really love that you you were, weren't afraid to be authentic and speak personally about your experiences because that yeah. really resonates with people. So. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, everyone's unique. Everyone's got their own story, haven't they? So, um, And I think also it's important to sort of speak openly about some of those things because a lot of people have experienced them. And I write about a lot of the, those things and I only ever write about things that I um, – I'm actually interested in or have experienced or have mm. some kind of uh, need to express. Mm. Um, so I, I'm not one of those people who writes about any topic that's really topical right now. It's always just about something that I, I find interesting. And I think that when you're like that, you tend to find other people who um, appreciate that because they have, you know, there's something in there that resonates for them. Yeah. Tell us how we can support you then. How can we learn more about your writing? How can we um, connect with you or learn more about the work that you do? Um, so actually my website is actually getting revamped and will be relaunched on Monday. So there'll be a new version of the website on Monday, but all my articles are up there. So like, I think they've got about 26 or 27 articles now. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and, um, I'm starting to develop a whole bunch of, um, eBooks actually. So that's something that I'll be launching at some point, but just haven't had a lot of time lately. So, but that's where you can go to kyliesprott.com and find all that stuff there. And we'll make sure we add a link, um, obviously for people in the episode and things like that so that they can access it as well well Um, sounds great and maybe even we'll have a chat we can have a link to your ebook or something at the end of the episode that sounds good yeah if i've got one of them ready to go yeah yeah. Yeah. definitely share that with the listeners yeah thank you so much for coming on it was great thanks carly thank you that was fun thanks for listening to building doors if you've got comments or questions send them to hello at buildingdoors.com.au and remember to subscribe rate and review see you next time